Hamamatsu is very suburban. Not too... It's like the perfect middle ground between being a super tiny town and being a city. We have a big Costco now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's an equal distance between uh, Osaka and Tokyo. Mm, So it's the perfect middle ground, literally. And we're also extremely close to Nagoya. If you ever want to escape into a bigger city, it's easy to do that. Um, I will say it does have a small town feel at times, though, so everybody knows each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, one of the nicknames, well, my senpai gave to Hamamatsu was Dramamatsu. <laughs> Dramamatsu? <laughs> Dramamatsu! Because <laughs> um, everybody's in so, everyone's business, that type of thing. Yes, basically, like, <laughs> if someone's having an affair or something <laughs> happens out of school, Everybody within Shizuoka will find out, but it'll probably originally happen in Hamamatsu. Like. <laughs> hello, hello! Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Farah as the guest. Farah is a writer and researcher originally from the D.C. area who now lives in Tokyo as a graduate student. And she's actually been living in Japan for almost eight years now. She became interested in Japan as a kid and got to go on a high school trip there when she was 17. And she was going to study abroad in Japan as well in undergrad, but that got canceled due to the natural and nuclear disasters that happened there in 2011. But Ferris still wanted experience living in Asia, so she did an internship in China for a number of months. And then eventually, after she graduated, she moved to Japan as an English teacher with the JET program, which is a program that a few guests have mentioned on Young Gifted and Abroad previously. And JET placed Farah in a city called Hamamatsu, which has a very sizable and diverse immigrant population, and especially a lot of Japanese Brazilians. So, quick history lesson. (laughs) Brazil actually has the most people of Japanese descent in the world outside of Japan due to people moving from Japan to Brazil for work in the early to mid 20th century. And conversely, from the late 20th century onward, there have been Japanese Brazilians moving to Japan for work and starting families there and everything. And so that's something that Farah learned about through living in Hamamatsu. And as she learned more about different immigrant communities there, especially having grown up as a child of immigrants back in the States, her interests expanded to include not just teaching, but also wanting to do academic research on education and on ethnic minorities in Japan. And that evolved into what she's doing now, which is writing articles about both of those topics, among other things, and also pursuing her master's degree. After five years of living and teaching in Hamamatsu, she spent a year in Osaka and then was awarded a fellowship that fully funded her graduate study and also placed her in a university in Tokyo, which is where she's at now. And she obviously can explain her master's thesis better than I can, uh, 
but basically it has to do with Japanese Brazilians who were born and raised in Japan and what schools their parents sent them to and what the impact of those educational environments was. So really fascinating stuff that um, she thankfully explained to me in depth, which I really appreciate. I was really interested in speaking to Farah about her research um, and I was also very interested in hearing about Hamamatsu because that's a place that uh, I had heard of but didn't know much about. So I was really thankful that Farah told me all about her Japan journey and how she ended up in academia. It's actually a very unique story and <laughs> started in a very unexpected way with a breakup even, if you can imagine that. So, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to having y'all hear that story. And we also talked about Japanese pro wrestling, believe it or not. That's something that Farah has gotten into through living in Japan. So she told me what that fandom is like, especially being a woman and a fan of Japanese pro wrestling, and what it's like going to matches, because now that Farah lives in Tokyo, she can go to pro wrestling matches and have an amazing time. So <laughs> a really fun conversation that we had. Farah is very smart, very witty, and I hope y'all enjoy hearing what she has to say. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with my friend, Farah Husnain. Well, good morning to you in Tokyo. Thanks for starting your Saturday morning off with me today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm really glad you agreed to be a guest. I'm really interested in learning about what you're studying right now in grad school and the different things and, and places that have led you to this point. So yeah, why don't we get started then with you introducing yourself a bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so my name is Farah. Um, I'm a writer and researcher based in Tokyo, and I've lived in Japan for about eight years now. Mm. I'm studying uh, peace studies at International Christian University, and my thesis is about uh, migration and identity with the Brazilian communities in Japan. Oh my gosh, okay. I have tons of questions about that. I'm going to uh, keep them at bay, though, because I, I want to kind of work backwards a little bit. Um, so... Eight years, you said you've been in, in Japan so far, right? Yeah, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> what got you... Because I know you were a jet, right? That's how you first got to Japan? Yep. Um, but what, what got you interested in Japan in the first place? Well, like many people, anime. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Um, it all started when I was eight years old. Uh, I was watching my Saturday morning cartoons and Sailor Moon appeared on TV. Mm. And uh, a few years later, I discovered that Sailor Moon was actually Japanese mm -hmm. um, because I rented a DVD from Hollywood Video back in the day when that existed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I popped the DVD in, and uh, when I played it, there was Japanese audio and English subtitles, and that was the first time I ever really heard Japanese language. And it was through the theme song. And I was like, wow, this is a beautiful language. I, I'm obsessed with it. This is my life now. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
I really wanted to study Japanese, but I lived in a not so well off part of Northern Virginia. So that wasn't an option for me. But I always passively learned Japanese. So I would listen to a lot of Japanese music. I would watch Japanese dramas and movies, watch a lot of TV shows, stuff like that.、Um, and I eventually ended up visiting Japan when I was 17 years old.、Mm. Um, yeah, so the summer before my senior year of high school,、uh, my high school had a partnership with this company called EF Tours. It's like a tour company. Oh, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah, so. Every year they went to a different country, but、uh, funnily enough, the summer before I needed to figure stuff out to apply for universities, <laughs> they decided to go to Japan.、Mm. And so, me and like, my school's anime club, we went to Japan for the first time, and it blew me away. Because even though I've been obsessed with Japanese pop culture for a long time, I wasn't sure how I would enjoy it as a country、mm, or、yeah. whether or not I could live there. Because... That wasn't really my intention, like living here for such a long time.、Mm. Um, but when I visited as a tourist, I had a really good experience. My tour guides were nice and the locals were really friendly. And we got to go basically all over the country. And because I saw other people in my tour group interact with people in Japanese, because we were combined with a school in Pennsylvania and they had a Japanese program,、oh, okay. I thought. Yeah, so watching other Americans speak Japanese, I was like, oh, I could do this. <laughs>、um, so I came back, and around this time,、uh, that's when J vlogging became such a big thing on YouTube.、Mm. So people living in Japan would vlog about their experiences living here. And that also really motivated me to you know, learn Japanese. And so I went to George Washington University, and I started studying Japanese there. Um, I was supposed to study abroad, but then Fukushima happened, so my program was canceled. Oh no. Oh yeah, yeah, so, yeah that, would make, that would throw a wrench in things for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah.、Uh, who knew that a pandemic would be happening right now? <laughs> <Yeah> . But、uh, <laughs> yeah, so I studied Japanese for about two years, but only up until like beginner intermediate. And because I couldn't study abroad in Japan,、uh, I wanted to you know, live in another Asian country just to show that you know, I could live in another country because that's not something I had done before.、Mm. So I went through this organization called ISEC. And ISEC is an international organization. There's a, like a branch at like, every university in the world.、Mm. Um, and they coordinate volunteers, but they also coordinate international internships. So, I ended up doing an internship in China、uh, in 2013. Oh, wow.、Okay. Yeah, and that was a really, yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And、uh, after coming out of China, I was like, oh, I can survive anything. <laughs>、um, but yeah, then I applied to the JET program, got in, and then after I graduated,、uh, I moved straight to、uh, Shizuoka. Mm. Right, first loop, yeah. Okay, so that's where you replaced、um, as a JET was in.、Um... Hamamatsu? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Hamamatsu Shizuoka. Okay. Wow. All right. So you went first went to Japan when you were 17. And how, do you remember how long that was?、Uh, it was only like two weeks long. Okay. <laughs> But they were the best two weeks of my life. Like, I was so blown away. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I, I think it's interesting you also made that distinction when you were saying how you. Were in, you knew you were interested in the pop culture, but you weren't sure if you would like Japan as a country. In terms of like being there for real or potentially living there, I think that's a distinction a lot of 
people maybe don't tend to think about when they move to Japan. Having the the whole like anime interest or whatever, maybe they don't consider the like the real life part of it and whether they would actually that would actually be a good fit for them or not. So it's interesting you already were considering that at such a young age. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think part of it is because my family is full of people who have traveled a lot. So mm. uh, my dad, his dad was a diplomat. And he lived in Turkey half his life. So he's basically like a third culture kid. Mm, um, so I think I just grew up with this consciousness and this awareness that, you know, what you see on Flickr <laughs> or now Instagram <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, might not tell the whole story or uh, somebody's JVlog might not tell the whole story about uh, what living somewhere else is like because everyone has their own experience. So right. I think course. that's why. You were there for two weeks the first time. And then you did the internship in China. How long was that when you were in China? Uh, I think that was around four or five months, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And how did that go? Oh, man. <laughs> it, it was quite fun. So it, I was an English teacher um, for my host family's daughter. But my host dad also worked at an import-export company. So I also taught English there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting because my host parents were separated. So, oh. yeah. So, uh, my host dad lived in, like in Zhuji. Zhuji is like two hours from Shanghai. It's like very middle of nowhere, but that's where all the rich people live. Okay. So it was like a mountain on a hill in a gated community. And I had a personal driver and like two housekeepers. Oh, fancy. <laughs> yeah. I, I was not expecting that. That was not in the job description. Like I didn't have to clean my room and it felt very strange, but, um, mm. and my host mother, she lived in Guangzhou, like so near Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And, this family was so loaded that even during the one child policy, they had two kids. So mm-hmm. the second child lived with the mom and the mom and the housekeepers were taking care of the child. So, yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. I think what blew me away the most was the international relations between Japan and China, like political tension. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that time I was very ignorant of it. I didn't realize, you know, in my mind I was like, oh, like it's all Asia. Clearly they get along. <laughs> but of course, you know, South Asia, like it's the same way. So like Pakistan and India has a lot of tension too. Mm-hmm. So I remember my uh, host daughter, she really liked Hatsune Miku. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she wanted me to teach her Japanese. And at that time, like, my Japanese wasn't good. Like, her kanji is better than mine, but I definitely knew how to read and write hiragana, katakana, and say some phrases. So, instead of teaching English, because her English was all, all, like, pretty native anyway, or pretty, like, high-level anyway, you know, break time, like, I would whip out, like, a book and, like, we would learn Japanese together. And then her host dad walked in and saw me doing this, and he was so upset. Mm. But not at me, but, like, at the daughter to an extent. And then he basically told his daughter about the rape of Nanking and all this uh, these war crimes Japan oh, had done wow. to China. Yeah. Also, uh, they lived with their great-grandfather who survived the emperor and stuff. Or, you know, 
So Oh, so he lived that. Oh yeah. He lived there. He lived that. Yeah. He like he was a walking talking history book. Mm-hmm. So after that, you know, my host daughter said, Oh, like I can't learn Japanese anymore, but I still wanna visit Japan low key. <laughs> and I know so many and I was also quite shocked about this because I knew so many Chinese students who were in my Japanese classes mm-hmm. in my university. And one of my best friends, he was a Chinese international student and he majored in Japanese, so I was surprised that in this family they didn't want me to teach Japanese or anything. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the shocking thing. There was also the lack of social media because everything was blocked. Uh, and mm-hmm. my university offered a VPN, but uh, it wasn't. It was very slow. So I had like a social media detox, unwillingly for like five months. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what were you using, like, uh, oh, what is it called? Um, like the Chinese equivalent? What is it called? Is it Weibo? Oh, like Weibo? Yeah, yeah. Weibo, yeah, yeah. I didn't really use Weibo because uh, it's only something, like, people in China use. And in China, I didn't really have any other friends to interact with because <laughs> oh, I was okay. always with the host family. Yeah. But sometimes uh, I would call my family or I would call my friends on different apps or when I could get to Gmail, I would email them. Mm. <laughs> but that was that was pretty much it. Okay. Um, I also got to go to the Great Wall of China. That was pretty cool. Oh, nice. Oh, well, I'm glad you had that experience. I'm sure it was only part of it, right? I'm sure it takes maybe... Is it all across all of China? Like, there's no way you could, like go to all of it in like a day no 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 you right. can't really go through all of it. no i was only on the beijing side like okay. i was on the beijing side yeah oh that's cool i'm glad you got to do that that's awesome so nice. you were in china for five months wait so were you going back and forth between like the the kind of ritzy area that was kind of near shanghai and the other place that was near guangzhou or where where were you based between those two places so basically, every month we would go back and forth by plane. <laughs> by plane? Oh, okay. Yeah. China, China's pretty big. So. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It was. It was. Yeah, was so it a private? Like, were they that rich? Was it like a private? No, plane? no, not, oh, okay. not. Unfortunately, no. Okay. I feel like they could, but um, no. I took the the, the regular commoners airplane. Okay. <laughs> That's totally and fine. I was, yeah, and I was supervising my uh, my host sister, so I would like be with her on the plane and stuff. But the flight was only like an hour long anyway, so okay. it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, I see. Okay, so yeah, that was that was China, and then you graduated, and then decided to do jet. You're studying uh, peace studies now. Did you mention what you were studying when you were an undergrad? Oh, I was an English major. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. So I guess that makes yeah. sense to you. Because uh, that's what I try to figure out when I have talked to people in the past who moved to a country through English teaching. Like, was that just a means to an end? Or did you have a, some sort of English or teaching background already? So I guess that makes sense that you went for JED. Um, was that like something that you were planning to do for a while you know, how, how did that factor into what you were trying to do after your, um, after you were finished with undergrad? Um, so I, I always wanted to be in the jet program, I think since I was in middle school. Mm. Um, 
because I remember specifically Googling how do I live in Japan or how do I experience Japan, and I found blogs written by Jets at the time. Yeah. The problem was, like, my parents were not very supportive of it. They wanted me to be an engineer. Mm. And as a first-generation Old eldest daughter of immigrants. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I felt like this filial piety, like I was indebted to them. Mm-hmm. So I try to compromise, and my original plan was, you know, maybe working for Nintendo or working in video games or something. But it was mainly because I wanted to compromise what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um. So when I came to GW, I actually majored in computer science and Japanese. Oh, okay. Um, but that didn't necessarily work out because at GW, the engineering program, it's very small. And uh, also the classes would often clash with each other. So if I was, you know, taking classes from two completely different disciplines at two different uh, schools, like humanities versus sciences, mm-hmm. then uh, I wouldn't be able to graduate on time, basically. Mm. And uh, the Japanese program at GW is also incredibly small. Like, I think my graduating class, there were only, like, three majors. That was it. Oh, wow. Um, And so I originally signed up for both majors, but then I ended up being burnt out a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I just basically didn't sleep. And I was working on top of that. Um, And it was to the point... Yeah, it was to the point where I got very depressed and I couldn't even, you know, study Japanese properly. (laughs) Um, oh, and that's what I, that's okay. <laughs> it was character development. <laughs> oh. <laughs> sure. <laughs> character development. <laughs> you, could, you could put it that way, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to an extent, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, sophomore year, I switched out of both majors. I didn't tell my advisors because both of them were pressuring me to stay on mm. because they were... Not that many women in my engineering program. Mm. And in my Japanese program, there weren't that many people. So I felt like my advisors weren't looking out for my interests. They're more looking out for, you know, hitting a quota. Uh. And a lot of times their advice would contradict each other. <laughs> so I felt like I couldn't trust anybody. Oh, that's a um, shame. But then I was looking into it and I always liked English. So... Growing up, you know, English is my second language, and when I was younger, my mom didn't speak English, mm-hmm. and I always had this, I've always felt drawn to helping people with ESL a lot in the U.S., mm-hmm. and uh, it was too late to major in international relations at this point, because I wouldn't graduate on time, so that's why I switched to English, Gotcha. Um, because I figured, it like, you know, this major is flexible enough, so... I can write, you know, I can read a lot of literature and I can analyze things, but I can also, uh, you know, turn that into something I could use in Asia. Mm-hmm. So that, that was my whole journey to becoming an English major. I see. And were you less burnt out as an English major than you were previously? <laughs> uh, a lot less burnt out, that's for sure. That's good. <laughs> I read I read Shakespeare like three times, though. <laughs> three or four times. <laughs> Okay, glad you found something that was a a better fit for you. So, you know, you applied for Jet, you were accepted, you got placed in in Hamamatsu. I'm trying to remember. Because you get like three choices, right? You can tell them your preferences, right? Um, Yeah. Was was being in Shizuoka, was that a place that you wanted to be in? or? 
No, I didn't even know where Shizuoka was on the map. I I didn't even know half of Mount Fuji was in Shizuoka. I didn't know anything. Um, Mm. I I think I know exactly why they placed me there. So in my application, I chose three preferences, and normally, like, nobody gets their preference, but I definitely, I remember I chose Chiba and Saitama because they were near Tokyo. Mm. I was all about, you know, trying to go to Tokyo because I like the city because I'm from the D.C. area. (laughs) And in the third choice, you had to pick somewhere that was different from the region you were like you selected before. So I just chose Nada. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just because I, when I went there in the high school, I remembered the deer. Like that was literally <laughs> like. <laughs> and they, at that time, there were no jets in Tokyo proper. Um, oh, really? But okay. yeah, so they. When the application started, they said that there were no positions in Tokyo proper. But after we all got accepted, that was actually the first time in 2014 uh, of August, you know, they opened up positions in Tokyo. Mm. So that was the first time any jet has been placed in, like, downtown Tokyo. Mm. Um, but uh, I think the reason why they put me in Hamamatsu is because it has one of the largest immigrant populations in Japan. And... In the jet application, there's a statement of purpose. So they basically ask, you know, why, what, what, what do you want to contribute to international relations in Japan? And why do you think you, like, you in particular should be a jet? And I referenced a lot uh, about my experiences in China. Hmm. So, for example, when I was in China, a lot of people didn't realize I was American. Hmm. Like, they, you know, they just assumed that I was from Pakistan or something, which is fine. But uh, their view of America was very white, very Hollywood. They're not exposed to people of different cultures, and they don't realize that America is a nation of immigrants, basically. Mm. And the idea of, you know, having a multicultural identity was kind of foreign to them. Mm-hmm. So I wanted... To I, I showed them that I wanted to represent a part of the U.S. that they couldn't easily see or interact with. And also give them inspiration. Like, you, you don't have to be white to learn English or right. you don't have to, <laughs> you know, you know, you can be whoever you want to be. Just just be a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so they put me in the most highly like immigrant populated places in Japan. Mm-hmm. So. And all, and all these uh, migrants, they're actually, they, they are of Japanese descent, which I found pretty interesting. Yeah. And um, that's when I learned about the Brazilian communities and stuff, because I honestly did not know any of this until I started living in Hamamatsu. Oh, so. wow. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that they, uh, they placed you there. And I'm assuming that has a lot to do or influence a lot of, you know, what you're focused on, like studying and researching now. Um, when you when you went to you mentioned how you wanted to be in the Tokyo area because you're like a a city girl and I guess that's maybe the most more publicized area of Japan I guess when you went to Japan previously in high school for that two week period were y'all staying mostly around Tokyo or did you you go to other places in Japan as well? Um, yeah, so we went to Tokyo, Kyoto, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Kumamoto. Uh, Nara. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah, we went so all went over all the over. place. We went, yeah, but we went to like the most touristy places. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> and to me, like Tokyo is like the most glitzy and glamorous looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was part of the reason. Yeah. So you got placed in, in Hamamatsu, Chizuoka, and then 
how many years in total were you a jet? Uh, five years. Five years. And you were in the same place. You didn't, like, transfer anywhere else. No, I was very lucky. So they just placed me at one high school, and I worked at the same high school for five years. It was great. Oh, awesome. Did you find that you enjoyed, you know, English teaching and all that? I know it can be a, a hit or miss, or what do they say? Every situation is different, or something like that. <laughs> Every situation is different. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, for the most part, I, I really enjoyed it. I love all my kids. I still talk to them today, and I can't believe they're, like, in their 20s now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you see well, them grow. My little babies. Yeah. My babies. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked working with my coworkers, like, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of culture shock with intercultural communication, because in the JET program, especially, I feel like, in our training, we're always taught to say yes, but we're never taught to say no or to be assertive in any way. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, a lot of things that were quote unquote cultural is not really appropriate outside of Japan mm-hmm. or, you know, normalized. Um, so that was really hard. I also feel like they don't really have any, like, they should really hire someone who's, you know, qualified in intercultural communication to train us because. I remember coming in, I didn't realize, for example, you know, Americans were very straightforward with everything. Yeah. But Japan is a very high context society, right? So if you're being criticized or if somebody wants you to change something, they're not going to directly tell you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also think international exchange should be mutual. So I felt like there was too much emphasis on, you know, uh, the Jets trying to put themselves in a box for their Japanese coworkers, when really mm-hmm. the Japanese coworkers should also understand where we're coming from too, in our perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, back in those days, I also really like Nomikai, <laughs> oh. uh, the drinking parties. <laughs> yeah. Um, now I feel like the cult, the culture has totally died out. Um, not just because of COVID, but because of other things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those are those are crazy. I would stay out until like six a.m. <laughs> Oh wow! Yeah, doing <laughs> karaoke. The ties wrapped around their head, like the whole shebang. Like I felt like it went out with the Heisei era. So. <laughs> oh yeah, with that era change, yeah. Well, that sounds like fun, at least. <laughs> oh yeah, I have a lot of stories. I have a lot of pictures. It, it was it was insane. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, cool, cool. Um, as far as Hamamatsu goes. I really only know that it's in Shizuoka and like we had mentioned that there's a lot of Japanese Brazilians there, but I, I don't think I've had anyone on the show actually who's been there and spent time there. Uh, could you describe like what Hamamatsu is like as a place to live and, you know, what were some of the more um, standout things about it, like its character or maybe what you liked most about living there? Yeah, so um, Hamamatsu is very suburban. Uh, it's not too... It's like the perfect middle ground between being a super tiny town and being a city. We have a big Costco now. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an equal distance between uh, Osaka and Tokyo. Mm, so okay. it's the perfect middle ground, literally. And we're also extremely close to Nagoya. Like mm. maybe 20 minutes away from Nagoya, so... If you ever want to escape into a bigger city, it's easy to do that. Um, when you walk around, you'll see a bunch of Brazilian people. 
mainly. Uh, there's also lots of Peruvians, Indonesians, lots of Filipinos, tons of Filipinos. And there's a lot of uh, pockets of immigrant communities because we have a lot of factories. Mm-hmm. So there's the Yamaha factory, there's a Shinkansen factory, Honda, uh, lots of lots of uh, big name brand companies are like in Hamawatsu or in a surrounding area. Mm-hmm. One thing I really missed about living in Hamawatsu was the Brazilian grocery stores. It was always oh. lit. Um, we also had an acai bowl place that was legit. It's not watered down like Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> um, lots of local like immigrant-run businesses there with a lot of flavorful food mm-hmm. um, from Latin America. Yeah, definitely the food and the people. If you go out drinking, it's very easy to meet people, not just in the Japanese community or in the, even in the English-speaking community, but all sorts of language-speaking communities. Uh, it seems to be that English is the middle ground for everything because a lot of these uh, locals, they do know English quite well mm-hmm. because uh, in other countries, especially um, Brazil, they are required to study English from an early age. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of them do speak English quite well and Japanese sometimes. But yeah, it's very suburban. Um, I will say it does have a small town feel at times, though, so everybody knows each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> One of the nicknames, well, my senpai gave to Hamamatsu was Dramamatsu. Dramamatsu? <laughs> Dramamatsu. Because <laughs> everybody's in um, so, everyone's business, that type of thing. Yes, basically. Like, <laughs> if someone's having an affair or something <laughs> happens out of school, everybody within Shizuoka will find out, but it will probably originally happen in Hamamatsu. Like, <laughs> <laughs> or if Aww. something happens. If something happens in Fukuroi or Iwata, which is, like, two towns down, like, uh, it'll mainly, like, spread, like, the rumors uh, from Hamamatsu, for mm. sure. <laughs> Drama Matsu. That's clever. That's very clever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and you mentioned um, Mount Fuji being partly in Shizuoka. Did you ever, like, get close to it or try to climb it or anything like that? I've gotten very close to it several times. But I have yet to climb it. <laughs> mm. I was originally going to climb it in 2020, you know, just as a milestone thing of being in Japan. But mm-hmm. then uh, COVID happened. So I was like, it's okay. The universe does not want me to climb a mountain yet. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> but most jets I know, um, they're way more athletic than I. So they would literally climb Mount Fuji, like, right after they land in Japan. Oh. Or land in... Um, yeah, like, because we have our orientation in early August or even July, and that's also the same time as climbing season for Mount Fuji. So oh. after they, you know, move here, they'll be like, okay, let's climb Mount Fuji. Let's do this. Let's do that. But I think another part of it is, you know, 50% of jets, they only stay for one year. So <laughs> they're trying to, like, you know, get everything out of their bucket list while they can. I see. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Did you, as far as, like, I mean, you ended up staying in jet for five years did you have a plan for how long you wanted to do that? Or were you just kind of like taking it year by year? Um, I was kind of going with the flow. Okay. I always wanted to stay for five years because I just wanted to, you know, learn the language. Mm-hmm. But during my fifth year, I was contemplating about going back. I, I really liked Japan and everything, but I also felt like career-wise, there was a lack of upward mobility. Mm. Especially because JET is meant to be temporary. Um, my school actually offered a full-time position with me, 
which is that doesn't really oh, nice. happen with people but yeah they i guess they like me that much like they offered me a full-time position but i actually turned it down because i felt like i was settling uh because during my fourth year or third or fourth year of jet i started writing for japan times Mm. and uh, I also started to do research my second year of JET program. Like, I was conducting research on, like, teaching in Japan um, before I was doing research on migration, and I always liked the research part of education, so I wanted to get a master's and a PhD, um, mm. and that was part, yeah. So I always wanted to get a master's and PhD at that point, but I just didn't know where I could go. You know, paying for tuition is pretty difficult. So, yeah, yeah, I I kind of basically went with the flow and I honestly didn't figure out where I wanted to go to university or uh, what my thesis would really be until my fourth or fifth year of JET. So I'm glad I waited it out and I'm glad I stayed here because if I left, I wouldn't have been able to come back for my program. And currently I'm the only person in my cohort who's in Japan. So Really? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because I heard <laughs> stories about um, international students not being able to uh, come back to Japan because of, like, COVID-related restrictions. So, yeah, I guess you are lucky that you <laughs> have been there this whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think a big, honestly, like, I think the biggest reason why I stayed is because I have a good support system here. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, I made a ton of friends for life, even, like, a chosen family, so I feel very settled down in Japan. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. That's something that I I think everyone should have. And maybe that's like more rare than it should be. But I'm really glad that you had that, you know, makes things a lot huh. easier. Um, yeah, it really does. <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned, I was going to ask, you know, where writing and, and research came into play with your, with your Japan journey. You know, how did you get started doing that were those things that you just kind of started doing on your own and then eventually you worked your way into like I guess doing it professionally (laughs) or in an academic um setting you know how did that how did how did you get started doing those things it all started with a breakup (laughs) oh wow I wasn't expecting that (laughs) yeah yeah no I I love telling the story to people because they're so shocked because uh I mean, I like reading and I like academic stuff, but honestly, when I came on the JET program, I didn't know, I honestly did not know what I wanted to do career-wise. I didn't know, mm. you know, about being a professor or anything. I didn't even know it was a thing in Japan. So, I was dating my coworker. Oh, okay. <laughs> who, <laughs> he would, honestly, uh, I'll be real, like, I learned most of my Japanese from dating my, uh, the hot PE teacher at the school. I mean, oh. hey, whatever works, you know? <laughs> <laughs> whatever works. <laughs> and uh, basically the way I learned Japanese was like, I was like a parrot. So I would just kind of copy what he would say and I would actively listen to what he said and did. Mm. But again, he was the PE teacher, so he sounded like a jock. So half the time when I spoke Japanese, like people were like, where are you learning Japanese? <laughs> like sports? Like, <laughs> but um, yeah, so... Uh, we broke up my second year and I was feeling pretty sad. So as you do, I go to a bar in Hamamatsu on a Wednesday night (laughs) (laughs) and I started talking to the owner and stuff because like, you know, it's only him and me and in comes, uh, this, uh, white dude 
I was really drunk and I just started venting about my problems to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he was very nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turned out that he was actually a professor and his research is about relationships between couples like from different countries. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to his, like, basically his thesis defense. So I attended his thesis defense and I was the only ALT in the room. Everybody else was like a professor from like somewhere in Shizuoka. Hmm. And yeah, his presentation was really good. I learned a lot about myself. It, it, made, it mainly like validated my situation because I noticed with a lot of uh, dating advice, we have dating advice groups in Japan. Mm-hmm. Like they're on Facebook, but they're private. A lot of times, like there may be red flags, but uh, like I noticed, uh, no offense, but a lot of expats, they kind of put Japanese people on a pedestal mm-hmm. <laughs> or especially Japanese men, if they're looking for a partner here. So if they do anything wrong or anything that, you know, might not be appropriate for a relationship, they'll be like, oh, it's Japanese culture. It's um, Japanese culture why he doesn't respond to your message. I'm like, oh, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, like, they are, like, they are human beings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, it, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so... I went to his presentation, and then afterwards, as per the culture, they were like, oh, do you want to go out and have drinks with us? I was like, yeah! So (laughs) we went to a bar downtown, and I was basically talking about my work and stuff, and one of the professors took me under their wing, and I started basically researching under them. Hmm. And I collected data and did research on teaching at Japanese high schools on the JET program, Hmm. um, and published it, yeah. So that's kind of where it all started. It was basically like when I was at the lowest point of my time on the JIP program and it just like went up like no other. Yeah. I got to travel all over Japan basically. I've been to 40 prefectures, but it was mostly because of conferences and I would get funded to go to conferences a lot through different universities. Um, I started networking a lot. And that's when I realized that I really like this, doing this kind of thing, like, you know, interviewing people like, like this and, <laughs> you know, doing research on specifically minority communities in Japan. Mm-hmm. And that's when I thought, hey, like, maybe I should get a master's in PhD and be like my senpai, essentially. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where it started. And then I published something on a website uh, or like this journal and uh, an editor from Japan Times saw my article, and he personally emailed me and asked me to write for Japan Times. Oh, so I never, cool! That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I never pitched anything to them at all. A lot of people would ask me like, "Oh, how did you start writing for Japan Times?" I was like, I don't know. They came to me. <laughs> so you know what? That's that's kind of a boss move. That's really <laughs> impressive. <laughs> They came Same. to me. I didn't go to them. They came to me. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, <laughs> I was so shocked. I, I remember this very vividly. I think this was September, like, fall of 2018 or something. And I was like, wait, this is not Japan today. This is Japan Times. Like, I have read them before. What? What's going on? <laughs> I was, I was so, yeah, uh, it was very surreal. But now it's been like 10, three, no, not 10, like three years. And I'm pretty used to it. So, yeah. Oh, well, that's amazing. All the things you've <laughs> been able to accomplish and going to 40 prefectures out of how many? 
How many is it? 47. Oh, 47. Oh, you only have seven left. Wow. Okay. It's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Um, wow. That is that is a really fantastic story. So a breakup led you to connecting with the local academic community, which led you to getting involved in research and kind of evolved from there into what you're, what you're doing now. Yeah, basically. That's quite a story. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I think this is my first time actually mentioning it on a podcast because people don't normally ask me this, so. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm glad I got uh, uh, the exclusive, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing how that all came together. Okay, so, and then how did you end up, because I know you were um, in Osaka for a little bit, right, before you ended up in Tokyo? So, oh yeah, how did, what, that's another story. <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, this time it was not a breakup, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, I originally applied for my program at ICU. Hmm. Um, it's called the Rotary Peace Fellowship, and it's very competitive, super competitive. It's even harder than Jet. Like every year, like thousands of people apply, but only like less than 100 get accepted mm-hmm. um and you get placed to different universities around the world and icu just happens to be one of them okay um so i applied with the intention of starting right after the jet program but i, I didn't make it to the final stage and i was like what like what should i do i i don't i want to move to a city and i you know I just wanted to start researching mm-hmm. and I started, I wanted to start grad school, but I didn't want to do it online or I didn't want to get like an online degree for some university I have no attachment to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I was actually on hello work for three months. Hello work is like unemployment benefits mm-hmm. and you basically get 60% of your salary. So I didn't, I ended up being fun employed like right after the jet program and I actually had no idea what I was going to do, mm-hmm. but something tell, told me that I should stay in Japan. Because I just really liked it. Mm-hmm. So I stayed in uh, Hamamatsu. And then my senpai, who was actually my grand predecessor at the high school I worked at on the JET program, mm-hmm. uh, she reached out to me because I <clears throat> mentioned that I was job hunting. And she said there was an opening at a city hall in Osaka. <laughs> so I applied to this job in city hall. They asked me to interview them. get interviewed by them and then like a a month or two later I was packing up my bags and moving to Osaka Mm -hmm. and I lived there for about a year and it was interesting because I moved to Osaka before the pandemic and then as it was happening too I was living there so it was crazy how things were changing overnight Mm -hmm. but yeah I was basically like a teacher trainer so I would train teachers on how to teach English because they were trying to change the curriculum to teach English at a younger age but most homeroom teachers in Japan, they don't speak English at all. And uh, I would also manage ALTs a lot. And during the pandemic, it was, it was, yeah, it was quite a mess mm. for sure. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so you went for the Rotary Fellowship, but didn't make it to the final round. So you were in uh, working in, in Osaka instead and living there for a year. So did you apply again to get into the program that you're currently in? Yeah, yeah, I applied for the second time. Okay. Um, <laughs> I rewrote all the essays. In that, in the, in my program, you have to write five essays in the application. <laughs> so 
So it was like wow. the jet program on steroids, basically. So yeah, I applied for the second time and it was hilarious because my interviewers were the same people as before. <laughs> and they're like, you're back. You're back. We're so happy you reapplied. I'm like, you, you remembered me. <laughs> and yeah, and the second time around, I got accepted and I was ecstatic about it. And they placed me in a, in ICU. So it was okay. really convenient. So, so you apply to the fellowship and they place you at a university. It's not right. like you already know what university you want to go to. You don't already have that in mind when you apply for the fellowship. Right. Well, actually, so when you apply, you can select, I think you can select your preferences. You can pick two preferences. Hmm. Um, so there's a university in Australia called University of Queensland, which is really, really cool. There's University of Bradford in the UK. There's Duke University, but you can only apply there if you're not American. Hmm. And uh, where else? Oh, Uppsala. There's Uppsala University um, in... In Sweden? Let me look. Sweden, yeah, I think so. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like, literally, like, it's all over the world. Okay. And, um, yeah, you pick two preferences, but in the end, uh, they place you somewhere. <laughs> okay. So. I see. Yeah. Okay. When you first mentioned it, for some reason, I had in my head that it was just, like, within Japan. But it's, like, a worldwide thing. Um, but then yeah. you, they placed you in a university in Japan since, I guess, since you were already in Japan already. Yeah, I think it was mainly because my thesis was focused on Japan. Oh, right. So, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, in the fellowship, I had to write, like, a research proposal of what I wanted. Like, I had to already know what I wanted to write my thesis about. Mm -hmm. So I already, you know, decided I wanted to do research on minority communities in Japan. So I think that was another reason why. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot, though, because you, like you said, you were, you were fun employed, as you put it, and then you yeah. moved to, to Osaka, and you were, like, working, managing people, and, and then also applying, well, you know, applying to this fellowship twice, I guess, in the mix of all this, and then, and then the pandemic started, and then, so you have to deal uh, yeah. with that, too, like, that sounds like a lot to juggle, you know? <laughs> it, it really is like I, I especially after my experiences like I come to realize that I mean in life some things just happen mm -hmm. but sometimes they happen for a reason I feel like a lot of these plot twists have happened for a reason for sure yeah plot twist that's a good way to put it I feel like that's like a a nice perspective to have in terms of like yeah. oh you know it's just a, a plot twist and and we'll see what happens next you know <laughs> Villain origin story, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's how you ended up in Tokyo. So, when did you move to Tokyo? It must have been recently, then, if it was after the pandemic started, right? Yeah, it was the middle of the pandemonium. I moved in August 2020. Oh, okay, so you—it's only been a, a year, just a, a little yeah. over a year since you moved to Tokyo. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So. You mentioned your thesis is on minority communities in Japan, um, including like Japanese Brazilians and other immigrant communities as well. I mean, you don't have to go into like all the the bits and, and pieces of it, but it's like in terms of doing academic research. I think I saw a tweet of yours that mentioned doing ethnographic research in particular. Like, how? What does that entail? You know, for someone who's not an <laughs> academic, like what, how do you go about doing 
academic research, or at least the type of research that you do? Like, what does that involve? So basically, ethnographic research is a branch of anthropology. And you basically try to view the culture of the society or the experiences of someone from their perspective. Mm. So I think the best way to put it, honestly, is that my research involves a lot of listening and, uh, and actively observing things and people. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, so my thesis is basically about uh, Brazilian sansei, so the third generation of Brazilians living in Japan. Mm-hmm. So the children of Nikkei. And I'm comparing the experiences of those who went to the Japanese schools versus the ones who went to Brazilian schools, because there are uh, Brazilian schools in Japan. Oh, I didn't know Um, that. Okay. Yeah. And the funny thing about Japan is that uh, for ethnic minorities, more often than not, they attend either international school if they got money (laughs) Hmm. or they attend uh, ethnic centered school. So, for example, in Japan, there's a lot of uh, Korean people. Because of the Zainichi population. Mm-hmm. So there are Zainichi schools. So mm-hmm. a lot of them, they go to Zainichi schools instead of the Japanese public schools. And that's very, that was very interesting to me. Uh, because in the US, you know, like, even if you're an ethnic minority or something, more often than not, you'll attend a public school. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to discover, you know, why parents, like, how do they decide which schools to send their child and how does that attendance in that school affect the child and the trajectory of their career basically mm-hmm. um but yeah uh, over the summer i collected my data and basically i went to guma aichi and shizuoka mm-hmm. and yeah i just interviewed people and i listened to them and i kind of observed their behavior um when they were interacting with other people in group interviews so i see yeah you said you're looking at, at Sansei. So is this what schools Sansei are sending their children to? Which means it would be like oh, fourth generation going to school? Oh, sorry. Um, I mean, like, uh, what schools the Nikkei are sending their children to? Oh, okay. So the Sansei, yeah, they're all in their early to mid-20s now. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm basically interviewing the alumni of these schools. Gotcha. And I'm asking them about, you know, how they experience going to school and trying to adapt to their community and living in Japan in general. Because most of these people, they were born and raised in Japan. They've never lived in Brazil or they don't really have an attachment to Brazil. So they're kind of in this gray area. Yeah. I see. Yeah, because I I was going to ask um, if maybe, you know, their parents deciding what schools they went to, if shaping or maintaining their identity was a factor or was a concern in, in that choice in terms of like, maintain their connection to like the Brazilian identity while also still being integrated into Japan. Like, is that, or maybe that's something you're still working on. I don't know. But um, like, is that a factor oh, okay. <laughs> in, in, in how their parents chose what schools they went to? Yeah. So I interviewed a couple of parents and students and what I come to realize is like, overall, there's some overarching themes. So Mainly the reason why is also, well, mainly to like have an affinity towards their culture mm-hmm. because uh, the parents, uh, more often than not, they only speak Portuguese mm-hmm. and, you know, if they send their child to a Japanese school, they might not comprehend Portuguese or they might not be able to communicate with them properly and, you know, they might feel ashamed about being part Brazilian. Mm-hmm. Um, 100% of my participants, and I interviewed 20 people, I think. 
they they brought up bullying as a main reason why oh, they didn't man. want to send their kid to Chapati school. Yeah. Mm. And I thought it was very telling because, you know, a lot of these families, they're very low income because they work at the factories. But it says a lot to me when they'd rather send their child to a Brazilian school, which they have to pay tuition for, mm-hmm. than a Japanese school for free. Yeah, so that does say a lot. Um, yeah. That is really unfortunate. Man. You're getting the perspective of, like you said, the sensei who are now in their 20s, but who, you know, went to various uh, schools based on what their parents chose. And then you also are talking to some of their parents as well to get, like, their rationale behind behind doing that. So you're like... Getting multiple yeah. angles, multiple perspectives of this particular subject. Yeah, exactly. And okay. hopefully um, when I finish writing my thesis, I'll figure out ways that, you know, the government and uh, schools can approach multicultural education yeah. and integration. Uh, because integration means a lot of different things for different people. Right. Um, one thing I've learned from writing my paper, uh, especially from presenting and like getting feedback from my advisor who's really great is that how you use certain terms uh, might be interpreted differently from different people by different people Mm -hmm. so the idea of integration in society growing up we always learned about the dichotomy between you know integration and segregation but Mm -hmm. what does integration actually mean does it mean you're completely conforming and assimilating into the host country and what the majority wants from you or are you living comfortably on your own terms? Like, mm. whose terms are you integrating for? Yeah. So, lots of lots of philosophical questions. <laughs> yeah. But it's all worthwhile, or at least, you know, it sounds like it to me. I, I feel like... I'm so glad... Obviously, you're not the only person in the world or within Japan who's interested in that type of this type of thing. But I'm glad that this is the focus that you've chosen and that you have taken so much care with it already. Oh, you mentioned interviewing, you know, um, your participants. Uh, I'm assuming this is all in, in Japanese. Are, are you doing this yourself in Japanese is what I'm getting at. Has your Japanese progressed to where you can handle doing this oh. interviews? All oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I didn't mention that. Yeah. No, my Japanese is fine. Pretty much. I actually are. I'm not really studying Japanese anymore. I'm studying Portuguese. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. But, uh. Yeah, no, I can translate. I can talk to people. I can I can do a lot of stuff. I still need to work on like studying enough kanji to pass N one on the JLPT, but I think my Japanese is way better than it was when I first came in. Mm. Um, as for interviewing people, actually, a lot of them they want to speak in Portuguese because uh, oh, that's it's right. like a therapy session in a way. Yeah. So yeah. even if they speak Japanese or English really well, you have your heart language or your mm-hmm. native language. So you'll tend to express yourself more openly and more naturally that way. So I don't know enough Portuguese to interview them. So I actually had a Portuguese interpreter with me the entire time. Some of the interviews was 100% in Japanese. Some of the interviews, uh, we actually did it half and half. So half of it was in Japanese, half of it was in Portuguese. And it was crazy how different the interview went (laughs) because uh for example uh, one thing about these interviews is that you have to pay attention to like the person's body language and even like the way they look at you sometimes Hmm. so i noticed immediately like uh when they started speaking in portuguese they started using a lot of body language a lot of eye contact (laughs) they're they're even like louder like 
like mm-hmm. volume wise, they were a lot louder with my uh, interpreter. I was like, oh wow, they, they f- it feels like I'm interviewing some different person. Wow, <laughs> so that yeah. is fascinating. Yeah, I guess you know, I like the way you put it in terms of heart language. Like, there's everyone has a language that they're most connected to or that they feel like could be the most expressive in without pretense or without having to feel like they have to self-correct in some sort of way so that's interesting how you notice those changes yeah yeah like uh, I was taking a qualitative research course right before I started collecting data Mm -hmm. and it's kind of funny because my thesis is like my life now and it's affecting every little part of it (laughs) in a good way yeah um like for example, I, I live in a share house, and it's an international share house. If you follow me on Twitter, I post, like, episodes of Farrah House. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I'm sitting in the common area, for example, I'm just not eavesdropping, but I'm kind of actively observing what everyone else is doing. And it's kind of like I'm doing research on them, even though I'm not. So, yeah, I, I view people a lot more differently in the sense that I'm more observant now than I was before. Like, I'm more mm-hmm. conscious about what people do yeah that's kind of like oh my gosh this is so random you're but it reminded me of there was this one show like a long time ago it was on cbs or something and it was about this guy who could like who knew body language and he like worked with some special i don't know if it was like local cops or fbi or something but his job was literally just to like analyze body language and tell if people were lying or not so that they could like solve crimes or something like that (laughs) for some reason (laughs) when you mentioned being observant i remembered that for some reason (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious yeah but um no i can't that's funny i wish i knew when people were lying but i don't (laughs) not not there yet (laughs) i mean it was it was more to that like uh, it was very short-lived but it was like showing how like little things about the people's body language like they can be communicating things without even realizing it and it was his job to like pick up on what people were saying without saying it anyway this is totally besides the point <laughs> but you know like in terms of being a being more observant like you were saying i guess that's that's what i was getting at but <laughs> yeah it's interesting how that has branched off into other parts of your life like you said and what you notice about people around you. Um, That's really cool. That's really cool. So it seems like you have, you know, you came in knowing what your thesis was going to be and you've already collected your data and are, you know, working on your, your, your paper and everything. You know, it seems like you really do have a, a handle on things in terms of what you want to do or how you want to try and go about it. But do you have any, guidance to help you in this process yeah um so like like any other grad school i I have an advisor i actually had a different advisor when i came to the program but he's on a sabbatical right now Mm. so i had to switch advisors but he's also quite helpful and and he's done a lot of research on uh korean americans and fatherhood actually Mm. so yeah 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 so i'm very lucky i'm in good hands um I also have my senpai in the program, though, because of COVID, all my classes are online. Like, I've, I've only stepped foot on campus maybe five times, six times. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it's my second year, so. So because, like, everything is online, things are a little different, but, yeah, I, I get help from time to time. Nice. Nice. It's been a year already, so you're in your second year. Is it 
two full years total, your program? Yes, it's two full years total. Okay, and then I guess after that you're on to your PhD or I don't know. I don't know if you know what your plans <laughs> are, if you're just focused on what you're working on right now. Um, right now I'm wearing many hats, mostly trying to find a place that can fully fund my PhD. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one thing at a time. It's not like you have to have it all planned out. I was just asking because I was curious. Um, I, I do want to, uh, want to ask, this is kind of random, but it's something I noticed. Where does pro wrestling come into all of this oh yeah because <laughs> it seems like you're really into pro wrestling and i'm just wondering yeah where that came from <laughs> honestly it, it came from terrace house <laughs> oh yeah and, right, yeah <laughs> and and going back to what i mentioned about being rejected the first time from the fellowship mm -hmm. so at that time i was i was not in the best state like at work i didn't have to teach that many classes mm -hmm. so i would watch netflix all the time <laughs> <laughs> and i came across a terrorist house and everyone and their mother forced me to watch it when it <laughs> i think it came out on netflix in 2014 maybe mm -hmm. but i think because i at that time i wasn't really big on reality tv and um i i like to watch things on my own terms i didn't pick it up until that time so then I started watching it, and then a year, not a year later, yeah, yeah a year later, uh, Hana Kimura came on the show. And that was the first time I was really exposed to, like, pro wrestling in Japan. And I really liked her fashion, and I, I liked video games, and I liked martial arts in general anyway. Mm -hmm. So I, I became very drawn to pro wrestling, so uh, I started becoming very actively involved in following pro wrestling all the time and i'm very happy i live in tokyo now so it's easy to go to matches oh wow yeah, yeah. what is that like being at a pro wrestling match in japan i'm assuming it's not like wwe like <laughs> or maybe it is i don't know i think it's it's kind of different from wwe i feel like every promotion has their own style mm. one thing i do like about japanese venues is that i think they're a lot cleaner oh. and uh <laughs> And also, um, the costumes I, I like way better. I feel like WWE costumes, no offense, like, a lot of them look like they were made in the 80s. Mm. I mean, I like the 80s, but I feel like they're kind of outdated. I feel like, because Japanese uh, pro wrestlers, they actually hire, like, a fashion house to make the costumes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And also, yes, lots of, lots of beautiful people in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> I always post thirst tweets about Cody Ibushi. <laughs> lots of beautiful, beautiful people, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that helps yeah. draw people in as well, you know. Um. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> like, like over the weekend, I went to a wrestling show and literally, like, a lot of the, like, people in the venue were women. What I really like about Japanese venues, too, is that, um, I don't know if they have the CUS, probably not, but there's a ladies section, like a women's section. The women's section have the cheapest seats, but also a good view. Mm. So I was like, dang, but they sell so quickly. Oh, yes. Yeah, so we're it's... all looking at the same man. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> we all have the same target. So I'm like, uh, I need to get on that ladies seat, <laughs> ladies <Aww>. section. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds like fun. Do you know why there's um, a ladies is it a similar reason to why there's, like, lady sections on the trains? Or is that a, is it a different rationale for, for wrestling? Um, 
So I think it's similar but different. So the reason why there's a women's section on the train is obviously because of chikan or groping mm-hmm. or sexual assault, basically. In the venues, none, nothing like that happens, of course. But um, I think it's so women won't feel intimidated when they enter the venue to oh. watch because a lot of times, especially, it's so funny because when I g- watch women's wrestling matches, I want to say like 99% of the audience is men. It's mm. like old, like middle-aged men and or elderly men or something. So maybe they, they're trying to build a community so you have a chance to interact with, you know, other women next to you. Because, mm-hmm. like, wrestling itself is such a niche fandom in Japan, but being a woman who's a fan of it is also extremely niche as well. Yeah. Especially me, like, uh, whenever I go to these venues, I always go to these matches by myself. I've never gone with a friend or anything. <laughs> so... Mm. Yeah, it'd be nice to, like, interact with people and make friends with people around you. Yeah. I think it's also because um, it's to encourage, like, word of mouth. And so we can introduce other people to wrestling, too. Mm, um, okay. Because it, if you draw in women and then, like, you have a community of women right there, they might tell other people about how great wrestling is that they might want to come to the venue. Yeah. Um, Spread the word and bring more people into the yeah. fold. Yeah. Okay. And another big difference in Japan, which I really like, I, and it's funny because, like, my first and only impression of wrestling is in Japan. I've never gone to, like, live wrestling shows in the U.S. Mm-hmm. with WWE, but we have these things called checky. So, like, uh, instant, uh, photographs. So you can take a photograph with your favorite wrestler and have them sign it and talk to them. Oh, nice. And in the U.S., like, I don't think this is a thing at all, but in Japan, it's such a big thing. It's, it's like the copy of like idol culture in Japan or going to a concert because mm-hmm. a lot of indie like uh, musicians they do the same thing so yeah taking pictures with your favorite wrestler and talking to them it's it's great yeah <laughs> oh wow that must be so much fun I'm sure it's, it's obviously it's not random f- for you because you explained how you got into it but I don't know maybe I think when people think wrestling in Japan perhaps they only think of like sumo and maybe not like professional wrestling that's of the type that you frequent and are familiar with so that's really cool that you have that interest yeah yeah (laughs) i'm very i'm very glad i got into it because it's like a whole other world i have yet to fully experience Mm -hmm. because of course like especially like back in the day like even though i had lived in japan for six years at the point i discovered like wrestling here Mm -hmm. um i was not exposed to anything about it like you wouldn't see any posters really about wrestlers or you wouldn't see anything in the media really. So there was no way I could have been exposed to it besides Terrace House. So yeah, I'm, I'm very glad I, I got into it. And yeah. Well, thanks t- to Terrace House. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. You know, as you said, you lived in Japan for eight years now. Um, mm-hmm. And you moved around. Most of it was in Hamamatsu, but then, you know, you lived in in Osaka, and now you're in Tokyo. Do you feel like you have any sort of preference between the three or felt most at home in any one of them? So I will definitely say, first and foremost, Dramamatsu is always my Japanese hometown. Oh. <laughs> um, over the summer, after I got my vaccines, uh, I had to go there to do my, to, uh, interview people for my thesis. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, I got to meet, like, a few of my friends, and it felt like I was coming home to a family I hadn't seen in years. 
So oh, that's wonderful. It was really nice. Yeah. Um, Ooh, Osaka, I especially liked because we have a different dialect right. uh, called the uh, Kansai Ben. And I felt like over out of all the places, Osaka seemed to be the most chill and open place. And a lot of people are very friendly there. So they'll just come up and talk to you. The only reason why uh, I would prefer living in Tokyo the most is because of the job opportunities. I feel like Osaka is really cool, but there's a lack of uh, career opportunities, especially if you're uh, not Japanese and if you don't have permanent residency here. Mm. So I definitely I'd rather live in Tokyo forever. Um, <laughs> it's just so much fun. Um, mainly because a lot of my friends, they end up migrating to Tokyo at some point. Like a lot of my friends, like, of course, they started out in uh, the Shizuoka area, but essentially, like, they all end up moving to Tokyo because that's where the jobs are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm trying to bring all my other friends to Tokyo <laughs> so they can all just be with me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have a master plan to bring all your friends around you and you can all be in Tokyo yes. together. <laughs> yes. Like, I'll send, like, job posts and be like, hey, look, there's a job in Tokyo. <laughs> Live near me. Live in my share house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh well, yeah. That, I guess that makes sense, especially as a, a writer, you know. Um, and Tokyo being like the big city where everything happens, like that makes sense. Where there'd be more opportunities there. Do you have anywhere else in Japan? I mean, obviously, you have seven prefectures left. I mean, you probably want to go there. But is there anything, anywhere specific in Japan that you would like to go that uh, where you haven't been yet? Or I guess in the future, anywhere and elsewhere in the world that you would like to visit? Yes. Toyama. Hmm. How come? So, uh, they have glow-in-the-dark squids. <laughs> <laughs> Like, okay. I'm serious. Every summer, the squids come up to shore, and they glow. They glow. Like, naturally, they glow, and it looks so pretty. Mm-hmm. And they're called the firefly squids. So that's what yes, you I want to Toyama for. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, because, like, most of the prefectures I I have not gone to, they're very rural, and I don't know. I don't think they're really known for anything. I mean, they might be known for something. It's just that I don't know. Mm-hmm. But... Toyama stings, stands out for me definitely because of the, the glowy, the glowy stuff. Okay, awesome. And then I don't know if if you thought about other places in the world that you would want to go to at some point. Yes, many. So I was very happy because like on the jet program, I didn't waste any time and I traveled outside of Japan a lot. Okay. And I think one thing that keeps a lot of people sane here is, uh, or like at least, um, you know, if you're a uh, foreign resident in japan is that like you can take a breather and just you know travel to another country as a break Mm -hmm. but when the pandemic happened i had planned on going to bali and also uh, manila i wanted to go to to these places so Mm -hmm. uh i've been to most of asia but i really want to visit indonesia and philippines i also really want to travel all over europe middle east i just want to go all over the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) in brazil i want to go to brazil yeah, that makes that makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Oh yeah. well. Um. Hopefully, in the future, you can go all over the world, and it won't be such a a hassle or you know a global health concern to be able to go around to all these places. <laughs> um, One day. <laughs> yeah, but it's good that you yeah, have them in years. mind. Yeah. 
You mentioned having a community, which is awesome. Just for curiosity's sake, I was wondering if maybe if you've been able to connect with or find other Pakistani people in the various places in Japan that you've inhabited. Um, I don't even know if you've if that's something you've been looking for. <laughs> uh, to be honest, not really. Hmm. Uh, I found I found like maybe one or two people on the job program, and it's so funny because like I. It, I'm always everyone's first Pakistani American because <laughs> um, most of the Pakistanis here, they're either from Pakistan or they're from the UK or Canada. I've never really met another Pakistani American here, actually. Mm. Um, I think, well, part of the reason is uh, a lot of people are discouraged from, you know, going into English teaching. <laughs> um, but I think it's also because of just the population. It's uh, higher in the UK and Canada. Mm. So... I've never necessarily looked for a Pakistani community specifically, but it was always something that was interesting to me. So when I was on the JET program, oh, I remember. I didn't meet another Pakistani woman, because that's even rarer, like a Pakistani woman, uh, until literally like my final training session, like on my during my fifth year. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I was chilling in the hallway before the sessions were starting. And I looked up, and there's this really beautiful girl, and I could immediately tell she was Pakistani. And she was from Canada, actually. So I just went up to her, and I was like, are you Pakistani? She's like, yeah! Like, you're Pakistani, too? That's so great! Nobody ever notices! Da, 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 da. And, like, we just talked <laughs> for, like, a long time. And uh, I, I, at that time, actually, like, she lived in Fuji, I think, and I lived in Hamamatsu, so we didn't live near each other at all. Mm-hmm. But we always kept in touch. And I was like her senpai, so I'd always give her advice. And then when I moved to Osaka, that was actually the final international trip I did. It was with her. Mm-hmm. So her and I went to Taiwan and Korea. And even though I had already gone to those places before, like it was really cool going with somebody new. And it felt like a totally different experience. Like Both of them were good, but yeah, it was, it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, and I met... A Pakistani American. She's actually a music producer. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. She went back to LA now, but I met her through my Twitter friend, and we clicked like instantly. Yeah. Mm. So I think she's honestly the only Pakistani American I know, the music producer. <laughs> okay. So you know, few and far between, but still some really interesting, meaningful uh, connections that you've been able to to make when you do end up finding fellow Pakistani or Pakistani American people. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I only have a, <clears throat> a couple more questions. I, I know I've already taken up a lot of your time and I appreciate you oh, that's okay. uh, being here and, and being so open to <laughs> the various questions I've been <laughs> asking you. Um, no, I, I have plenty of time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, so with the Rotary Fellowship, does that cover your your graduate study? Is that like fully yeah, funded? Yeah, it, it's fully funded. So it covers my tuition, my insurance, my some of my living expenses. Okay. Um, I I also get a research stipend. Uh, so that's how I was able to hire the interpreter and travel around to collect data. Okay. <laughs> so it, it's really really good. Yeah, I think it's better than next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, way that's, better than next. That's um, that's good. That's like something you don't have to worry about and. You're taken care of, and you can just focus on, on your work and your, your subject of study. 
I ask that because, yeah. you know, I, I normally ask people how they afford being able to study abroad or do their thing um, in another country. But it looks like that's not yeah. a huge issue for you since your program's fully funded, <laughs> you know, which is Yeah, awesome. I will say, yeah, I will clarify, though, like, it's enough to survive, but it's not enough to fully, you know, experience Tokyo. Mm. It like uh, the only reason why I'm able to, you know, go to afternoon tea or like go to Harajuku or eat like big pizza or something. <laughs> um, like that's because I have a lot of side hustles. Mm. So I, I translate, I write articles, I I work with um, a disaster relief program right now, and that that they are paying me. Mm. Um, I'm also a classroom assistant at my university. So I, I do a lot of jobs here and there, and that's that's all like fun money. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, like definitely like, even if the program is fully funded, it's definitely not enough to have fun and really experience, I guess, living abroad. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So you still have to yeah. do some, some things on the side to have more of the experiences yeah. that you want. Yeah. Mm. And, and then do you have any other, in a, in a general sense, in terms of living, working, studying in Japan, do you have any, advice or major takeaways you would want to impart to someone who wants to maybe do similar things that you've been able to do? Definitely. Um, I think the major thing is what you get out of the JET program or what you get out of something, an international program, is what you put into it. Mm. Like, uh, of course, being on the JET program helped me get to where I am today, but it wasn't just being stationary and just working all day you know uh, it's more about what I did outside of it right um also uh community is very important and I feel like especially on Twitter people have a lot of mixed feelings about that whether it's staying in the quote-unquote foreigner bubble or uh you know isolating yourself from Japanese communities I think it's important to have a balance so I think with a lot of Jets I've met, especially the ones who know Japanese or want to learn Japanese, mm-hmm. uh, they feel like, you know, they, that I don't want to get stuck in the gaijin bubble. I want to have Japanese friends, da, 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 da. And they kind of treat their Japanese friends as accessories to, you know, their language development, which is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think what people do need to realize that, especially if you're a minority in a country, it's natural to have an ethnic enclave. Yeah. Right. Or it's natural to have a community of your own. So I think it's important to understand that it's okay to have, uh, and it's very natural and it's very important to have a community of people who understand where you're coming from. And it might take a while before you find your niche. Um, because a lot of times uh, on the JET program, especially, I've noticed that I felt like I was hanging out with a lot of people because we all worked the same job and there was nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so definitely, if you can, like, join language exchanges, try to um, go beyond whatever bubble, um, I guess, your job might provide. Mm-hmm. But definitely don't dismiss it because uh, those people will be there for you when you're stressed out at work or something. So, right. yeah, community is, is very essential. It's a human thing that we all need. Yeah. <laughs> Even whether you're introvert or ex whether you're an introvert or extrovert, it doesn't matter. We all need community. Yeah. So. For sure. That's really important. And I'm glad that you have your community, as you've mentioned, you know, the support system around you. Um you you know, so you've been away for eight years, you know. Uh how does 
I mean, obviously you're a grown person. You can make, do whatever you want. But like, how do how does your your parents feel about you? What you're doing in Japan? Are they trying to get you to come home or something like that? You know, I mean, how do, or do you even stay connected to them and talk about what you're doing? You know, like how do your parents feel about your life in Japan thus far? It's very funny. So when I left many years ago, I didn't think much of it, but. I've actually gotten closer to my family because I live so far away from them. Like, mm. it, it, I guess because I'm not there all the time, it seems more evident that I'm not always present. So it's good to communicate more often. So we communicate a lot more now, actually. Oh, okay. Um, but I remember when I left, my sister told me that my mom would just watch NHK World all the time just to learn about Japan. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> it's adorable. And it was... And I'm so happy about my mom because I remember, like, back in the day when I was trying to learn Japanese, like, she thought Japan, Korea, and China were all the same. She didn't realize, mm. you know, they're different countries. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, oh, you're going to China. That's I'm like, well. <laughs> um, or, oh, you're going to learn Chinese. I'm like, well. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, no, yeah. But no, it's it's so cute. Like, she would call me and be like, do you know about the green tea in Kyoto? I really want to try their tea. It looks really good. That is so I want to eat the omelet rice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now she's very, like, educated about it. Thanks, NHK. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, like, no, my mom says she's proud of me before and stuff like that. And, and I talk to her about my thesis a lot. And uh, I remind her that she's my inspiration, honestly, behind it. Because uh-huh. I did grow up in a multicultural environment and i know i've been exposed to someone who did not know english and you know had to endure a lot to you know acculturate into society Mm -hmm. you know and make sacrifices so my mom is my thesis basically (laughs) oh that's wonderful and i'm glad that y'all have grown closer and that she's interested (laughs) and she's more interested in (laughs) japan now and everything that's that's wonderful (laughs) happy to hear that um, okay, so my, my last question for you is, you know, where can people reach you or keep up with you online if you'd like them to do so? Yeah, um, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Farahakase, um, F-A-R-R-A-H-A-K-A-S-E. All right, perfect, simple, and it's the same thing in both places, so it'll be easy to find. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you have as well. This is really fun. Um, yeah, it was so much fun. <laughs> and I, again, I, I really think the work you're doing is so fascinating. And, um, you know, I just hope, you know, with your research and your writing your thesis and then all the articles you're writing and, and the translating everything else you're doing, I just hope it all continues to, to go well <laughs> and that you continue to do things that you're that you enjoy and are genuinely interested in. And yeah, this is really great. I appreciate you making the time on a Saturday morning. (laughs) You could have been sleeping in, but thankfully you made time to talk to me. (laughs) No, no, like honestly, yeah, no, this is like coffee. It's yeah. It made my day. Yeah. It's good. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I really am. Yeah. Yeah, Other than that, for now, I don't, uh, there's nothing else that I need from you. You've been very, generous with your time and very forthcoming with your stories about your journey so far, which I really appreciate. And uh, yeah, I just hope you have a great Saturday and a great weekend. Thanks. Yeah, I hope you have a good weekend too. (laughs) All right. 
Well, thank you so much again for your time, Farah, and I will be in touch, okay? Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> All right, y'all. There it is. Thanks to Farah for being such a wonderful guest, and I hope you like how this all turned out. For the rest of you listening, don't forget to follow this podcast at Young Gifted and Abroad on Instagram and Facebook, and at YG Abroad on Twitter. And don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on YoungGiftedAndAbroad.com. Also, if you enjoy what you've been hearing so far. And please continue listening to Young Gifted and Abroad wherever podcasts are. And you are welcome to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. So for the next episode, in two weeks, the guest, if all goes according to plan, the guest will be someone who was an exchange student in Senegal and Morocco. So you can look forward to hearing all about that in two weeks. But until then, thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time. Sunny, sunny, sunny.